Hey all, it's Jesse. As 2020 draws to a close, think about what you're thankful for. Other than I'm willing to bet 2020 drawing to a close. What got you through the year? Odds are, if you're hearing my voice, public radio was one of the things. Public radio gave you accurate, dependable news about the election and the pandemic, information about local stories that matter to you. You got fun and fascinating interviews from shows like Bullseye. If you want to show your gratitude at the end of this year, consider supporting your local public radio station. Public radio stations really need your help right now, more than ever. And it's really easy to do. Just go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye and give whatever you can. And thanks. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Roman Mars. Roman hosts the podcast 99% Invisible. It's a show about the little-known stories behind everyday design and architecture. Things like prefab homes, trash can design, those little ramps you see on sidewalk corners. How and why did stuff like this come to be? Now, after the show's been around for just over 10 years, Roman is exploring those same themes in a book. The 99% Invisible City is a beautifully illustrated look at how cities work and why they work the way they do. Roman is also the founder of the podcast network Radiotopia. He's worked in podcasts and radio for decades. I've known him for nearly as long. He actually came up with the name for this show, Bullseye. Uh, He sent it to me in an email, list of ideas. Unsolicited, by the way. Anyway, I'm really excited to talk with Roman about his new book, so let's get right into it. My conversation with the great Roman Mars. Roman Mars, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to talk to you. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much. So congratulations, Roman, on finally utilizing a visual medium for your (laughs) design and architecture (laughs) podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, it was a long time coming, big leap, but we finally did it, yes. When you started 99% Invisible as a radio show and podcast, originally it was kind of like made to order. It was in part driven by the desire of the AIA, an architecture trade group, mm-hmm. to have an architecture show. Yeah. And I wonder whether you would have done a show on that subject had someone not suggested that it might be cool. And what you were worried about, about trying to do audio about design. I mean, I think I already had the interest in architecture, but I don't know if I would have necessarily uh, jumped on it as a subject had someone, you know, not requested it. (laughs) But what I always knew was like, I liked the idea of doing it on the radio because I knew that I and other people had real biases when it came to the the image of buildings, the way, way buildings l- looked. And I was really interested in the problem solving and design aspect of buildings. And I thought that actually on the radio, it actually made you understand the story of a building before you had the visual image and that could make you love or appreciate a building in a different way. And I always thought that was our secret strength actually as a show. Well, let's talk about buildings for a second. The show covers much, much, much more than buildings. (laughs) But what is an example of 
a building that is, if someone looked at it, they might not appreciate it in the way that they might appreciate it if they knew its story. Well, you know, one of the first buildings I ever really appreciated in this way was when I was in Chicago, I was working at WBEZ and I took the architecture boat tour that the Chicago Architecture Foundation gives. So you you go on this big boat and a docent tells you stories about the buildings as you go along the river. And there's this one building in the Montgomery Ward complex that's the headquarter building. And it's it's a really basic rectangular building, but it has these big concrete corners on it. And I pass it all the time. I never cared for this building. I thought it was boring, modernism, really ugly. And then the docent told the story of the fact that the reason why it has these big concrete support columns on the corners was because the Montgomery Ward Company at the time prided itself on this egalitarian hierarchy. And they didn't want their vice presidents fighting over who got the corner office. And so they made a building that eliminated any possibility of a corner office at all. And it just kind of made me love it. And, you know, before I thought of it as nothing ho-hum kind of building. And then I noticed like, oh, there's real genius even in the architecture that I don't appreciate. It's interesting. Architecture and design are fields that, like any other specialized field, they're prone to specialization of knowledge and intense connoisseurship mm-hmm. and you know professional knowledge and stuff that that Joe Blow off the street might not get. Mm-hmm. They're also, at least theoretically, specifically created to be accessible, to be used. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of an interesting tension to me. Like I think of all like buildings on college campuses that the students all hate. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Mostly, mostly, but not exclusively made of giant blocks of concrete. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I think that's what I, what I love the most about it. And, and I think that the show takes into account the fact that this is the art and design that we live in. And it makes us feel a certain way. And we actually preference that when we present architecture, like we're not just the, you know, academic list of isms of modernism and brutalism. You know, I like to pay attention to how these buildings make us feel. And that is part of the story. And it really is accessible because you, you feel it regardless of whether or not you know anything about architecture, you, you feel this sort of sense of uh, like wonder like there's a reason why when you go to washington dc you kind of feel the federal government you know like you feel this sort of glory in this stuff and they were onto something when they did that and you kind of feel the heaviness of brutalism and then maybe i can tell you a little bit of the story of it to to make you change your mind a little bit to get beyond your initial you know visceral reaction to it but that initial visceral reaction is totally valid and is part of the design and is worth talking about. I love the unintended and intended consequences of someone's intent when they design something and uh, that weirdness that you might feel for some crappy concrete building that you have on campus. The, the mud library at Oberlin is a brutalist like masterpiece and everyone complained about it when I was there. <laughs> like everyone thought it was oppressive and horrible and it kind of is, but it's also glorious too. And I just, I didn't know enough to appreciate how it was glorious. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Roman Mars. He's the founder of the Radiotopia Podcast Network. He's also the host of the show 99% Invisible. I've listened to the show since, not to brag, but the first episode. <laughs> I know you have. Um, but I, I've listened to the show forever. And I remember very early on in the show's run, having a conversation with you about it. And you telling me that one of your guiding principles for the show was no stories about people, just stories about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, you know, all these, all these, you know, a decade or so in, you have done a pretty good job of sticking to that. I mean, sometimes you have to tell the stories of people to tell the stories of stuff. Yeah. But it's never like meet the man behind the Golden Gate Bridge. It's yeah. this person did this interesting thing that created the, the Golden Gate Bridge. Why did you leave aside the, like, the number one easiest technique for <laughs> feature journalism, which is this is the life story of the, thing, of the person behind the thing that you know? I mean, yeah, we do it occasionally and I do like humans to show up in the story. And I do think that the story of the stuff is the story of humans and our values and the things we care about. But there's just something more fun about making a story about bigger ideas than a person and their feelings and, and not boiling everything down to some personal story. You know, like when you're watching like a biopic and then there's that moment in the biopic, which is so on the nose as to why a person did a thing that you know they did later. And it's so uh, just, this is painful. Like it's, it's cliche. It's hard to watch. And I just wanted to always make it about the idea. And, and there's great characters in there. Like, you know, the Curb Cuts episode, you know, wouldn't have happened without Ed Roberts in it. And Ed Roberts is a real character. But it's it's about things that are not just him, but about all these things around him. And I just think that's a more fun story to tell. Tell tell me a little bit. Uh, we haven't even given an example of a ninety nine percent invisible story. So let's take that curb cuts episode. Yeah. Um, what was the design that that episode was about? It was really about those little tiny four inch ramps that make it so that a sidewalk doesn't come to a cliff, you know, when it reaches the street and makes it so that it's accessible to people in, in wheelchairs, but also makes it more pleasant for all kinds of people who don't want to like, who have a hard time stepping up or for people who are pushing a stroller or any, any type of, of mobility that's, that's different from a completely healthy young person. And, um, and it's about those and, and about the fact that they really do symbolize this movement that Ed Roberts was a huge part of. He was the first uh, quadriplegic to be accepted to UC Berkeley. And the UC Berkeley, you know, grudgingly sort of made accommodations for him. And he always pushed for it and pushed for other people. And these curb cuts became the symbol of um, making a more accessible world, which led to the ADA and, and all kinds of uh, progression uh, and all kinds of progressive advancements in terms of in people with different abilities. I don't think it ever would have occurred to me that sidewalks existed without curb cuts. Mm -hmm. And it feels like a big part of the show and a big part of the book is revealing 
the iceberg under the surface of the water behind things that you might not have considered, like curb cuts. You know, mm -hmm. you might have just walked up them your whole life and it never occurred to you that they made sidewalks without them, as I, I probably wouldn't have to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's this whole story underneath there. Yeah, I mean, that's what the, the name is, 99% Invisible. It's that the, the physical object is just 1% of the story and the history behind that thing. And what I love about it is in the 10 years we've done the show and, and with the book and as it's being introduced to new people is that there are these stories everywhere and they're really gratifying when you find them in the most mundane things. Like you notice them for the first time, even though you've passed them all the time and you, you notice this richness there. And then you begin to you know, have a little bit more fanciful, interesting day because you know, oh, there must be more stories about this other stuff. And maybe I'll look that up, or maybe there's something like about that in the book. And, um, that's the part I, I love about it. It's really fun to give people the sort of permission and a little bit of, uh, the prompt and the guide to help them find stories and delight right outside their door. You've always been a guy, uh, in my experience, who really loves learning about something. Mm -hmm. And I think all the time of this origin story you told me about how you became a public radio person, mm -hmm. which, you know, I mean, I guess 99% Invisible is, is no longer technically a, a public radio program, but uh, certainly remains deeply rooted in public yeah, radio. in spirit, for sure. And it was basically that <laughs> you were getting a PhD in genetics studying corn. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, you were listening to Talk of the Nation when uh, the great Ray Suarez was oh. the host of that show. And yep. you thought, well, I don't think I could do what Ray Suarez does, <laughs> but I could probably be the guy that looks it up and puts it on a piece of paper and hands <laughs> it to him. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. I didn't know what that job was, but I was like, somebody reads the books and helps him be so good on the air. And I would be really good at that job. That, that's what I felt like I could do. <laughs> and so that's what I went to pursue. Yeah. So what was the thing that made you feel like you could be good at that job, but that you didn't want to be a professional scientist? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that you were, you know, you almost, you were very close to getting your PhD. I mean, you were 21 or some Doogie Hauser <laughs> age, but you were very close to getting your PhD at the time. Mm -hmm. So what led you to think I would be better at that than at being a scientist, a job that also involves looking stuff up a lot? <laughs> well, I think to be a scientist, and I didn't know this because I was very good at studying science, but I didn't really have the experience of being an actual scientist. And there's a real difference in the type of, I don't it's not, it's like ego, but I don't mean that in any pejorative sense that you're driven by the thing you want to discover so much. Like you want to be the person that does it. You want to devote all this time. And, and I just was like, well, I just kind of want to know things. And it's, it's a whole lot easier just to read about things that other people discover <laughs> if you just want to know things. And because I kind of knew I was wired that way and I was a very poor bench scientist, like in terms of like pipetting things into tubes, I was extremely uh, lazy and bad at it. <laughs> and all those sort of things together realized that I just really liked the pursuit of knowledge. And I thought that graduate school was just going to be a continuation of being in college, which is what I really wanted to do. And so I just thought that this job of being a radio producer was kind of like being in college forever. And it, it turned out it kind of was. actually. <laughs> I write papers every week. I study things. Um, you know, like it's, it's kind of just undergrad. I just never left Oberlin. I'm very grateful for the help that I have 
making this show. Kevin's on the line right now, so I wanted to my producer, so I wanted to make sure I said that out loud. <laughs> um, but uh, you and I share the experience of having, and it's an unusual experience of having made a public radio show by ourselves. <laughs> um, I made this show by myself for many years, and yeah. you made Invisible Ink by yourself, and, mm -hmm. and for a long time you made ninety nine percent Invisible by yourself as well. Yeah. Um, although you know you you had you had people contributing here yeah. and there mm -hmm. in the early days. What did you learn from having to go on the air once a week by yourself without any <laughs> without anyone <laughs> to check if what you were doing was good uh, and uh, without anyone to to see how they were reacting to it? I mean, that's one of the specific radio things is it's yeah. such a vacuum. Right. What did you learn from from generating that much stuff that regularly? I mean... I think you learn a couple of things and they're kind of almost the opposite things, which is like you learn to have a certain amount of self-discipline and to, to listen to yourself and listen to your work to the point where you're so uh, done with it that you're sure it's good enough. And then you also learn if it isn't great or isn't perfect, it's, uh, it's okay. <laughs> it ain't that big a deal. There's a new thing out. You have to put something out next week and it'll be fine. And I think that those two things um, help me as a podcaster because I think one of the, the issues with podcasting in general is people get into it and they love it and they love to be producing stuff and they love to be talking and connecting with people and all kinds of other things. But they didn't have that time where they had to discipline themselves and in terms of the, the radio clock and how to fit stuff into time and, and how to not waste your audience's time. And I think that the work kind of suffers because of that. And so um, I'm glad I had a period of time where I was like a meticulous self-editor because um, it made me better today. But, I, but I'm pretty loose when it comes to that stuff. Like my team, you know, uh, 13 people work on the show now, um, including me. And they work in different capacities. But, you know, they'll pick out little things to, to pull out or to change or to, you know, like have me retake something. And I'm just like... Uh, that's fine. I don't know why you're complaining. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's just from doing it for 20 years and they're still in that stage where you have to do it perfectly, they'll, but they'll get, they'll get to where I am eventually. <laughs> I think that is a, such an essential and underrated lesson though. And it's like such a classic drama of the gifted child uh, <laughs> lesson to have to learn. And like, I, I see it with, with my kids right now and i certainly it's something that i can relate to which is you know for much of my life certainly my childhood and adolescence my only solution to my perfectionism was just not to try and do anything <laughs> <laughs> and, and i think totally. that one of the reasons that you know stage performance and going on the radio once a week was appealing to me was that you have to do it. Mm -hmm. And when it's done, it's done. You can't yeah. worry about whether it was, you know, because you, you got to work on the next one. Totally. I, I think it's, I think it's an important lesson. I think it's really good. I remember I was, you know, I know, I know a lot of people in public radio because of how I came up. And so I was once, you know, like uh, visiting HYY in Philadelphia and watching Terry Gross uh, do her show live. And she kind of puts it together live, even though there's some stuff that's pre-recorded. And I'm sitting in the back with their director, Roberta Chirac, as she's training a new director. 
and we're just like chit chatting and stuff. And, and I'm like, do you have to, uh, pay attention here? <laughs> and she's like, no, he's got it. He's doing a good job. Besides it's not brain surgery. It's radio. If you mess up, it'll be fine. And I just remember, uh, I took so much heart in that because it's totally true. Like we're like, I want it to be good. I have a contract with my audience to make something valuable to them to not waste their time. And then beyond that, you know, like the story of the show is something that is a 10 year story. It's not, it's never encapsulated into one episode. And so you just have to kind of let some of that go, you know, while still maintaining like a quality that you're proud of. And I think we do that each week, but it's good to let some of it go. When you go to a new city in times when traveling to new cities is possible or advisable, mm -hmm. what is the first place you go or the first thing you <laughs> look for or the first thing you ask about? I mean, what I think is fun now is if I'm, if I'm feeling in the mood for it and it takes a specific mood is I kind of let people know if I'm going to go someplace. If I'm, if, if I'm doing this the best way, I, people know I'm coming to Pittsburgh or coming to DC and then they'll like say, Oh, I can let you into the top of this building or something like that. And that's sort of like, that's the privilege of having like a show about design and architecture as people will like give you secret tours to things. You know, I, I like to walk a lot. And so I look for places where I can walk um, and experience the the city that way. But each city is really, you know, really different. And so it's it's kind of hard to generalize. But I, you know, I do museums. I like a I like a good tiny museum, like a weird specific tiny museum is a, is like always. I went a, to a museum called Modo in Mexico City yeah. uh, last summer, which is the Museum of Everyday Objects Museo. <laughs> My Spanish isn't strong. My memory is ob objeto del objeto, um, <laughs> something along those lines. And uh, man, that was so great. Yeah, <laughs> I loved it. I, uh, you know, the Postal Museum in DC. Like you can go to all these. Oh, other shout out to Oni, oh, the yeah, Postal Oni. Service dog. <laughs> <laughs> yep, there's nothing like it. This you, is a taxidermy dog totally. that wears a vest covered in postal medals. Yeah, that's that's a postal museum. Heavy with postal medals. <laughs> You're like poor dog. They had to give him a new vest because he had too many medals on the first <laughs> vest. <laughs> But he rode postal trains and, and uh, postal inspectors and postal employees would give him medals at each post office he went to. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great story. Like I like a good, if there's a chance for taxidermy at a museum, I'm like all in. <laughs> Especially weird taxidermy. <laughs> well, I mean, I also think that there are places that reveal themselves more easily than others. Like, you know, you lived in Chicago. I visited Chicago a number of times. I've taken that architectural tour that you described, mm -hmm. but I think you would be hard pressed to walk around downtown Chicago and not appreciate it. It's totally, it is beautiful. Like yeah. it's spectacularly it's beautiful. Whereas I live here in Los Angeles and, you know, Los Angeles is every bit the great city Chicago is. Uh, but you know, there's a, I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of ugly in LA yeah. and a lot of the best stuff in LA, somebody has got to tell you about cause it's a whole, and it's a whole hassle to get there. Yeah. And, th and that's why like either, either I talk to someone who was like a friend or, or I let people know who, who, who don't know me, but know me through the show and you need a guide for most cities. Like you're, you're totally right. Like Chicago lays itself out for you. Like it is there to be appreciated, you know, like they, and they focus on that, but LA is a place where 
you are told about a place that takes 45 minutes to drive there and it's like a great hot dog stand or whatever. And, um, and, and food is a good way to sort of get you in a lot of different directions, which is another way I like to, to navigate a city is through food. And that, that's a great way to experience city. And I do, I do like those cities where somebody, you know, has to be your guide. They're just kind of harder for sure. Um, but they're worth it. What are some things when you are walking around in Oakland, California, where you live, and you see that you might your eyes might not have landed on and appreciated before you did this show? Oh yeah, well, this show really opened my eyes in lots of ways. So I love uh, sidewalk stamps. Often, the construction company who laid the sidewalk, if they did a building and then they tore up whatever sidewalk there was, if there was a sidewalk, and then they laid another one down. And they often put an imprint of the company on the sidewalk. And uh, those are all over the Bay Area. And you can even see like the evolution of a company. There was one like a a Schnorr pavement, and then there's uh, Schnorr and Sons, and then Schnorr Brothers. And you can see like the evolution of like, of like, okay, bringing the kid into the business, and then dad retires. (laughs) And if you walk around Berkeley streets, you can see these stamps and they have so much history in them that I think is is really amazing. And I, I love the different like easement markers that are like, these little tiny embedded plaques that are like, uh, this space is not dedicated or something like that, which are, which are basically markers because the part of the sidewalk is often owned by the the person who owns the building, not, not by the city, but they're giving permission for the sidewalk to be there in, in order to sort of avoid adverse possession, meaning that the, the city just takes over because they've had it for so long. They have to put these markers around to say, well, no, I own this property. I'm, I'm going to let you use it for now, but I own it. And I love that, that kind of weird, like legal, strangely bureaucratic information layer on the, on the city. And, and I think that those things because they're so mundane and because they have this legalese language, I, th- I think they're easy to not appreciate or not really think about. But I, I think about all the stuff that came before it and the cool kind of story there. And I kind of like its awkward bureaucraticness. And I don't think I ever would have found beauty in that before the show. There's one of those sidewalk stamps outside my house that's relatively old for Los Angeles. I live in a relatively old neighborhood for LA. And mm-hmm. it, it's dated 1923. And a f- maybe 50, 100 feet past that sidewalk stamp, the road ends. There is in fact not a sidewalk. It's just a a narrow concrete road Mm -hmm. and turns into dirt. And whenever I see that 1923, I think that is almost 100 years that they have not finished this road. (laughs) 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 Like 97 years ago, they were like, yeah, well, we're about three quarters done. (laughs) We'll get there. And then they just bailed. (laughs) There's a story there. I don't know what it is, but there's definitely a story there. We'll finish up with Roman Mars in just a bit. After the break, we'll talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the design of cities and which of those changes might become permanent. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in one space with a new virtual room, collaborate live, drawing, sharing, and building ideas with everyone on the same page. And make sure more of your team is seen and heard with up to 49 people on screen at once. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at microsoft.com teams. 
Well, hello, I'm Renee Colvert. Hi, I'm Alexis Preston, and we are the hosts of Can I Pet Your Dog? And we got breaking news, we got an expose, and all the beans have been spilled via an Apple podcast review that said, this show isn't well-researched. Well, yeah, no duh. Of course it's not. Not since the day we started has it been well-researched. Guessing and anthropomorphizing dogs is what we do. The Can I Pet Your Dog promise is that we will never do more than 10 seconds of research before telling you excitedly about any dog we see. I'm going to come at you with top 10 enthusiasm, minimal facts. We're here for a good time, not an educated time. So if you love dogs and you don't love research, well, <laughs> you know what? Come on in to Can I Pet Your Dog podcast every Tuesday on Maximum Fun Network. <laughs> Writer Baratunde Thurston says this democracy experiment requires more than just voting. This is incumbent on all of us. It takes two. Right? It takes two to make a thing go right. It <laughs> takes two to knock it out of sight. And both parties, in a national level discourse, both sides have to still remain committed. How to be a good citizen. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, all. Jesse here again with a reminder. We're getting to the end of the year. Now is a great time to support shows like Bullseye by supporting your local public radio station. They do so much for you, and they're only asking for a little in return. Give what you can and do it now. Go to donate.npr.org bullseye. And thanks. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Roman Mars. He's the founder of the podcast network Radiotopia and the host and creator of the design podcast 99% Invisible. He just released a new book based on that podcast. It's called The 99% Invisible City. It's available now. Let's get back into our conversation. So one of the stories about design that's often investigated on 99% Invisible is the tension between the world as it is designed by designers and the world as it is used by users. Mm -hmm. You know, the classic example being a park with paths, concrete pavers or whatever, and then all the corners have diagonal dirt paths through the grass because people don't want to make 90 degree turns to, <laughs> right. to, get, to, to take <laughs> diagonal routes. And I feel like living in a pandemic, we are seeing design as it is practiced flourishing around us mm -hmm. simply because it was something that was not planned for. Yeah. Yeah. And something that we don't have enough understanding of necessarily to make perfect plans about. Yeah. Um, what do you see around you in terms of design that is a, a response to the pandemic? Well, I mean, that's what I love most about cities is I think that the city is this ongoing conversation between top-down design and bottom-up intervention. And that's where all the stories come from. And if I, if I could boil down the show, that's kind of what the show is about in the end. And so Desire Paths is a perfect example of that. And what I noticed, you know, like in response to the pandemic was what, what I first noticed was how quickly everything happened, like that the tape on the floor and the plexiglass and all that stuff like went up so fast. And I, I was sort of bowled over by the ingenuity of everyone uh, affixing plexiglass to to like counters in ways and like you know having like a two by four and then an eye hook and then a, 
uh, string and then plexiglass hanging and then it being bolted to the, I just was sort of amazed by how quickly all that stuff came up. And, you know, some of it's super kludgy and some of it's, you know, not very fun to to navigate. But um, I mean, one of the things that I noticed about the pandemic was how it's illustrating how ad hoc and haphazard the evolution of a city is. And it's always been this way. It's just like we're seeing it in, in real time as we're dealing with the pandemic. And that is super fascinating, the parts that they can take on on their own. And then, then there was a whole response during the summer with all the protests and, you know, like uh, plywood coming up and then how people kind of respond to like, especially in Oakland, you know, like they're trying to like express solidarity and they're like, you know, please don't uh, smash <laughs> this because I have this Oscar Grant poster up, you know, or something like that. And, uh, or George Floyd mural. And there's that response where people are like trying to express themselves and, you know, say that oh, we're part of this too. And we're expressing our support. And that conversation is what makes a city interesting. And that's the stuff I like to uh, look at. And um, what it will be interesting to see is what stays, you know, like I've noticed that the, the tape on the floor has turned into design decals where they have little footprints and they have a little statement on them that say, you know, social distancing six feet or something like that. Whereas it used to just be blue painter's tape or something. And, you know, maybe that stuff will stick. Maybe it won't. Maybe the sidewalk cafes will look and then parklets and all that stuff that people are experimenting with will stay. You know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to say. This is very personal to you because you lost your father to COVID very recently. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And I saw that one of your first reactions to it publicly was upset over the system. Yeah. And not, you know, not necessarily the system in the, you know, rage against the machine sense, but that if, if someone had been at the wheel doing some designing and thinking systemically that maybe your father would still be alive. Yeah, I was, it was one of the big, like almost overriding emotions, like when it came to him and his sickness and death. And one of the things I felt a ton of was just how unnecessary his illness was because it was a thing that the federal government, you know, just didn't take on and it's became a political thing. And, you know, he, he died unnecessarily for dumb politics because somebody couldn't get out of their way enough to just like to care about the citizenry. And, um, this is what governments are for, you know, this is, and, and I'm a believer in government. So like I'm, I, I live on the opposite spectrum with so many things when it comes to Donald Trump, but one of them uh, with him and a lot of his Republican compatriots is that I believe in government. I believe that government is a representation of the things we do that we can't do alone and that we work together to create a better world together. And we do that and we call that government. And that's not something to be ashamed of or to be dismissed or something that needs to be made so small as to be non-existent. And this is the time when we need it. Um, because an individual's response, like there's nothing that my father could do. Like he caught COVID in the hospital. Like he was undergoing another procedure for, um, he had some vascular disease. Like he was not a healthy man. And so that made him susceptible to COVID. But, um, you know, he, he did the things that you're supposed to do. At least I hope in terms of, uh, you know, keeping him safe, um, from coronavirus, but he caught it anyway, uh, because there's a, a, a health system in Ohio just overwhelmed with, 
um, COVID cases and that there being overwhelmed with COVID cases is, is something that we could have stopped. And it makes me mad that we didn't stop it. It makes me sad that we didn't stop it. It's a tragedy that we didn't stop it. And we're still not stopping it. We're still like having fights about the politics of masks and staying home uh, when you know, there's real things at stake here and they seem abstract to people, but they're not abstract. You know, there's a quarter of a million people have died and this requires system thinking. It requires us thinking about the whole because the little parts of these sacrifices and the little parts of the things we have to do you're, you know, like it is, I understand that they don't seem that important because you live your life a certain way and you're healthy in a certain way, but the totality of these choices, they, they have to be thought of as a design system. And, and if they're not, the response is, the result is, um, people like my father die. You know, I'm, I, I was really uncomfortable with the, the, the single day that I had put that on Twitter and like 70,000 people like shared it or liked it or something like that. I was really overwhelmed by being the center of people's like emotions for that day. That's not a place I love to be, but I do think it's important for people to share those experiences. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking this time and thanks for your great work. I've, I've loved your show for so long and I've been, I love the book and I'm very grateful to consider you a friend. So thanks, Roman. Um, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. I, I mean, I, I should let people know that like you telling people to listen to the show, 99% Visible, was one of the first ways we got an audience. So I'm grateful for you. <laughs> well, you helped invent this show. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do people know that, that I named Bullseye? <laughs> yeah, you named it. Roman Mars, it was great to talk to you about your Great book and your great show. Thanks for coming on Bullseye. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Roman Mars, The 99% Invisible City is available to buy now. You can get it from your local bookshop or on the 99% Invisible website. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where, you know, they say... <laughs> Red tape prevents you from building homes here in Los Angeles, but they sure are building one right across from my living room. So, you know, sorry if you've heard it. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We also get some help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and to their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. If you want to hear the latest about what we are up to, you can keep up with the show on Twitter at Bullseye, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We post all of our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.